This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to The Readback. My first attempt at parallel parking came in an elementary school parking lot with two orange cones. And while I eventually mastered the art of parking between those cones, none of it mattered until I hit the real streets. And there, the only way to really learn parallel parking is to hit the curb. Failure brings success. And that's where we stand in the world of autonomous vehicles, somewhere between that elementary school parking lot and the real world. It just so happens, self-driving's first breakthrough also took place on a fabricated course, far from the city streets. Today, I'm going to share with you that story. You could trace the entire history of the modern self-driving car movement back to this catastrophic event in the Mojave Desert. That's Alex Davies, who we heard from last episode. He's the author of Driven, a book about the history of autonomous vehicles. The book gets into the tale of this quirky government project. It involves a million-dollar prize, some big egos, and troublesome tumbleweeds. But first, a flashback to the 1950s. Moscow newspapers were first. Then headlines around the world echoed the news. Russia had blasted a man-made moon into outer space. On every continent and in every land, the story of Sputnik... It was October 4th, 1957. And for the first time, humans had put something into space. And it was very much a foreign object. In the middle of the Cold War, the Soviet Union had been first to a new frontier. And this shocked Americans. If the Soviets could do this, what else could they do? Every part of the U.S. government was forced to react. In February 1958, President Dwight Eisenhower established a special agency in the Pentagon. I shall propose a program of action a program that will demand the energetic support of not just the government, but every American, if we are to make it successful. Reporting to the Secretary of Defense, the program was tasked with maintaining U.S. technological superiority over potential adversaries. It's known as the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA. DARPA's mission is to come up with the craziest stuff it can imagine and figure out whether or not it's possible. Much of DARPA's attention has gone to military ventures, including the creation of the stealth bomber. But the relatively small government agency has also spurred some of the most important life-changing innovations of the last 75 years, like GPS and the internet. DARPA's scope is broad and varied, but there's always a common thread, finding a neglected area of innovation in need of a kickstart and then backing it up with a lot of cash. When I was there, the budget was running around three and a half, four billion dollars a year. Billion with a B. With a B, yeah. That's Tony Tether. I was the director for eight years, and that was because I couldn't get a job anywhere else. You know. <laughs> then again, why would you want to? With a sky's the limit budget, DARPA was a place to take big risks 
that were nearly impossible anywhere else. Though when Tony became director in 2000, one of the agency's key projects was very much on the ground. In the early 2000s, the U.S. Congress wrote its annual military funding bill, and it included one little clause that said, by 2015, make one-third of all military ground vehicles unmanned, essentially autonomous or remotely operated. From the military's perspective, this technology could be used for surveillance without having to put American lives on the line. But Congress and the military were perhaps not thinking big enough. The idea was those vehicles would still require remote operators. Tony and DARPA had bigger ambitions. The real game changer would be full autonomy. The program was not truly autonomous. They were trying to do things like having one person control four vehicles. I thought, well, God, we ought to just have the vehicles go by themselves. DARPA was already working on similar research. It had actually funded the first autonomous robot, Shaky, in 1966, and had done work on autonomous vehicles as early as 1984. But, as with all things self-driving, it never really went anywhere. Tony wanted to break the pattern. Buried inside DARPA's congressional mandate was an interesting provision, the power to hold public contests to jumpstart innovation. An open competition was ideal for self-driving. This wasn't building an airplane or even the next internet. Most of the parts needed for an autonomous vehicle were available at Radio Shack. At DARPA's annual meeting that year, Tony laid out the plan. And I had the meeting in Disneyland because basically DARPA was Disneyland. And um, because of all, we, you, you, that, that, I'm interested in that metaphor because of all of like the toys at your disposal in a sense. And the, or why, why do you? Yeah, because Disneyland is a place of dreams, you know? So it just was natural because DARPA is a place of dreams where dreams become reality. And at that conference, I announced that we were going to start a program, a prize program. The DARPA director, Tony Tether, said, forget the normal way of doing things. We're going to branch out. We are going to have a race. Anyone in the country who wants to build a self-driving car, bring it to the Mojave Desert in March of 2004, and we're going to race 150 miles across the desert. Whoever wins gets a million dollars. It was called the DARPA Grand Challenge. This becomes a hugely popular event. You have high school teams and teams of people who used to do battle bots and hang out in their garages on weekends. They start building self-driving cars. You get teams from technical colleges, and you really get this interesting patchwork of people, which is exactly what DARPA wanted. It wanted to open up the world of innovation beyond the people it already knew at these universities and companies. We had hundreds of people in the country get turned on by this. It was really back to the Wright brothers and the first airplane to go nonstop across the ocean. It was just that kind of excitement. I like to sometimes pretend that I really knew all this was going to happen this way, but I really didn't. I mean, I thought we were going to get some excitement, but I did not really, really anticipate the magnitude of people with ideas that now had a way to go and and, and do it, and they used their own cars. This wasn't just an amateur event, though. Serious robotics people jumped aboard, too, like Chris Urmson, a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University. Chris went on to become the CEO of Aurora Innovation, the self-driving tech company we mentioned last week. 
I had been working with a team on a small robot to explore the Atacama Desert, and it moved at 30 centimeters a second, which is kind of a, a slow walk. The Defense Department wanted vehicles that could drive 50 miles an hour. So my advisor had pulled together a team. I had the privilege of being the technical director for that team, and we built a robot out of a Humvee to go try and compete in that. Because governments were still worried about letting autonomous cars loose on city streets, DARPA and its ragtag crew were forced into the desert. This is a great kind of Woodstocky. If you could have Woodstock and robotics mingle, that's what it would look like. Fifteen teams qualified for the final race. The cars came in all shapes and sizes, from military-grade trucks to small ATVs. The course went from Barstow, California to Prim, Nevada. On March 13, 2004, the race was on. And we're 30 seconds from history. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Okay, the bot has been ordered to run. The green flag waves. The strobe light is on. The command from the tower is to move. Autonomous vehicle traversing the desert with the goal of keeping our young military personnel out of harm's way. Booyah! The goal was serious. The race itself, semi-serious. The results, though, they were kind of a joke. We had a trail through the desert that we had all marked out. And so they had GPS coordinates, you know, they'd get through the desert. And then as it all started out, uh, some of them didn't go very far. The race course is 142 miles. Most vehicles didn't make it a mile. You have these crazy bathtub-looking things flipping over, driving into a barbed wire. A Jeep goes out of the starting chute, stops, makes an inexplicable U-turn, drives back to the starting line. Okay, we have a bot on its side. We had one, which was a big truck, a huge truck. Oshkosh. Make it an adjustment. No problem. Another adjustment. No problem. No problem for the sagebrush around it. Seeing the K barrier. They got caught between two uh, tumbleweeds. You know, they had a sensor in the front, and the sensor saw the tumbleweed and didn't know what it was, but they were to do no harm, so it stopped. It started to back up, and there was now a tumbleweed in the back, and they saw that too, and that, that poor big truck just oscillated, you know, back and forth with two tumbleweeds holding it. So one of the first self-driving cars was held up by basically some grass. By grass, yeah, by grass. Here were these cars failing at the simplest tasks. But even this failure couldn't stop the hype cycle still building around self-driving cars. Ladies and gentlemen, in a couple years from now, you're going to take autonomous vehicle technology for granted. You're going to get in your car, drive to the freeway, program the car to take you someplace, and then you can legally use the cell phone while the car drives itself. In this race, success was a relative term. Here's author Alex Davies again. The vehicle that goes the farthest comes from Carnegie Mellon University. It's called Sandstorm. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandstorm. Sandstorm was the car Aurora CEO Chris Urmson worked on. For a while, the red Humvee performed like a normal car, tackling the desert terrain at a good clip. Until it didn't. 
we drove about seven of the 150 miles before, you know, we crashed through a couple of fence posts and ended up getting stuck on the berm on the side of the road. <laughs> but that was pretty good, right? In terms of like the competition. Yeah, it was, it was actually, well, we went the furthest of anyone. And if you looked at kind of the product of speed and distance, it was a big step forward for the technology. And it was, it was only because we were able to pull together all these great ideas from other people and, and kind of point them at this one problem. That version of success may have been lost on everyone else, though. When it was all over, there was no winner, no million-dollar prize, and no clear path forward. DARPA was totally lampooned because it had built up expectations and you get all these really mocking headlines in places like Popular Science and Wired. And one headline is foiled, DARPA robots all fall down. But even as the self-driving cars were being towed out of the desert, Tony Tether wasn't deterred. They didn't go very far. They went across the major road and the last car was up on the ridge burning away. Well, I got into the helicopter and I went to print. These were the top-notch people in the press. I mean, there was a lot of people who were there. And I walked in the door, and I was with my person who handles the press. And she said to me, well, you know, what are you going to say? And I said, well, I'm just going to tell them what happened. I went, and they were excited. They said, okay, how's it going? And I said, it's over. (laughs) And so a couple of them said, well, what do you think about that? Are you disappointed? And I said, disappointed. We had these things go seven miles and do something that has never been done before. And they said, well, now what are you going to do? Well, I said, we're going to do it again. And this time I'm going to make it $2 million. Well, I really didn't have the authority to do $2 million, but that didn't bother me. I had the authority to do $1 million, but I didn't have the authority to do $2 million. But I said it, okay. When many of the same teams returned the following year, things went a lot better. And that $2 million prize was paid out. All of these teams who are really enthusiastic about the 2004 race now feel like they've got something to prove. And they've learned a lot along the way. They've got another 18 months to correct their mistakes, to figure out what went wrong, how to improve. And so in the 2005 race, five vehicles finished the entire course. So you really see a quantum leap in capability. And this time, the results caught everyone's attention. There were people there from the automotive industry. There were obviously uh, reporters and all from around the world. And it really started an industry. By 2007, a desert track had become too easy. DARPA upped the ante with an urban-style course. The latest self-driving contestants managed street signs, rival cars, and human stunt drivers all while following California traffic laws. Chris Hermson's team finished on top. Here's Alex Davies again. That's enough of a success that Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the co-founders of Google, who are standing there watching, they start thinking, this is something we need to fund. And a year later, when they decide we're going to start a self-driving team, they go out and they hire all of the best people from the DARPA challenges. And if you look today at who's actually running the self-driving car industry, most of them were there at the time. If the failures of 2004 were so instrumental in pushing along the future of autonomous driving, what does it tell us about where self-driving is today? Yes, my Honda Pilot still can't drive itself and buzzes when you take your hands off the steering wheel. Yes, we continue to miss deadlines, and 2020 brought more disappointment than progress. 
But what if these disappointments are just another version of the 2004 Grand Challenge? What if our failures have us on the cusp of another breakthrough? The Grand Challenge, of course, is still one of my favorites because, you know, it really ended up being a big deal. It gave us a reputation. Uh, and so we were getting people coming with ideas that they didn't before. They didn't know that there was such a place that you could come to with crazy ideas. I mean, it's a big deal to have people saying, hey, there's a place in D.C. where if you have a crazy idea, go there. Because there's a crazy guy running the place. He might just fund you. you know? <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back for our new season. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadbackatbarons.com. Thanks to Alex Davies, Tony Tether, and Chris Ermson. Alex Davies' book, which is a great account of the DARPA Grand Challenges and so much more, is called Driven. And for more coverage on self-driving, you can check out barons.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Additional thanks to Meta Lutzoft and Jackson Cantrell. Next week on the show, the technology at the center of self-driving's biggest debate. You take a look at the industry now, you take a look at all the automakers, and they're pretty much all on the same page, with maybe the exception of one person. We'll be back next week.